Hey, let me catch you up on the book of Haggai. If you were out last week, uh, Haggai is uh, a, an address given by the prophet to the people who had back, been back in the land about 20 years. And so just kind of the cycle of how these things go. The Israelites had been disobedient. God had taken them up to Babylon. They had come back from Babylon to rebuild the temple, and they'd been hanging out in the land about 20 years and had gotten not much done. And so Haggai comes in and he says, you've gotten not much done, but your homes are awesome. God's home lies in ruins. Their hearts were broken and they gave themselves to the work. And so that's Haggai 1, 1 through 15. That's what he has done. They've given themselves to pursuing the right work of God in the right time of their lives. And so when Haggai chapter 2 picks up, it's not quite a month later. And so they've been engaged in this work for a month or so. And so all that goes into that, they're going around and think, man, I wish I'd have moved the heavier boulder 20 years ago when I had a 20-year younger back, and I wish I had done this. And so they're putting these things and ordering it and getting it ready, and they're lining their supply chain up and all these types of things and all the stuff that project managers really excel at that I really have no understanding of. But they're, they're doing these things. And then in the midst of this, what we recognize is they're facing in a very same way, the things that you and I face when we give ourselves to some great task or endeavor, disappointment, disappointment, right? So how many of us have joined the gym and so we go in there and we're like, I'm gonna work this off. And we get in there and, 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 and maybe like two, three weeks later, we're like, I'm not working this off, but I, like I'm paying it. I, and so we, we find ourselves in the midst of this looking in the mirror and saying, I don't look different, I just feel sore. I don't look different, I just feel poor, right? Because gyms aren't cheap. And so we find ourselves in the midst of these things facing some significant disappointment. We also see this sometimes spiritually for ourselves, and Haggai's a great picture of that disappointment. Wow, that was sudden. (laughs) I lost it. Okay. (laughs) Anyway, so they're in the midst of this. And, and the word of the Lord comes to Haggai the prophet, and he goes now, and he speaks to the three groups. And so there is Zerubbabel, and he is the, the governor over all of Judah, appointed there by Darius. He goes and he speaks to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and he speaks to the remnant of the people. And so these people are kind of breaking into these various groups. And so on one hand, we see this guy who, who stands for all governmental authority. On the, on the other hand, the other twin pillar of this, we see the guy who's the religious authority for the people, Joshua, the son of Jehozadak. And we see all the people, we see all of us, the, the peons, the plebes, kind of out here in the middle ground, right? And so he's addressing all three of them. And one of the interesting things we pick up in the book of Haggai is that we don't see a different message for people in different stations of life. We see the same message being met out to all the same people because we recognize they're all experiencing the same things. They're all journeying through the same things. So there's not this various kind of strata of understanding of, man, the leaders, we're completely, um, we're completely just not affected by the changes and the difficulties and and be it the governmental leaders or the religious leaders, and the people who are there, they're not affected either. Everybody, there's this great parity of understanding and of impact in their lives. So Haggai goes and he speaks to all of them in a very concise message. But he begins with three questions. Look in verse 3. They're all gathered there. They've been working for not, not much more than a month. And he asks this question, Who is left among you? who saw this house in its former glory. Now, if you read through 1 Kings, you'll recognize the temple that Solomon constructed is awesome. It is just 
fabulous. It is magnificent. I mean, the, the guy spared no expense. He's just exhausting all resources. There is gold galore, bronze everywhere. There is no amount of money spared in the construction of Solomon's temple. And so people would travel from miles around to see it and just behold the wonder of how amazing Solomon's temple was. They'd walk up to it and they'd see light uh, reflecting off the gold and they'd just say, man, this place is awesome. Everything else in that day paled in comparison with how, great Solomon, how greatly Solomon had constructed the temple. And so he asked this question. Now imagine yourself, you're beginning to kind of form up and see this thing take shape. And Haggai asked the question, who among you saw this place in its former glory? So what's he doing? In some sense, absolutely, he is inviting criticism. Haggai apparently has never been a part of the one-minute manager, right? So imagine stepping into a meeting with some of your colleagues, some of your employees, and be like, who's really disappointed with the way things are going? Show of hands. Like, who wants more vacation and higher pay? Show of hands, right? This is what Haggai's entering into. He wants them to understand the reality of the situation they face and the reality of how incredibly difficult it's going to be for them to move through this. So he asks the question, who among you saw it? Now we know this is somewhere between 66 and 84 years since the destruction of the temple. And so if we allow that understanding of kind of math to work its way in, those who had formerly seen it would be young children at the time of the destruction and now would be quite a bit older. Now, I don't know how often you think about those things that you remember as a child, but this week I was kind of thinking about this and, and I thought, man, summer for me for a long time tasted like a couple of things. It tasted like Welch's grape soda, bean dip, and Frito chips. Man, but probably says something about where my family's from. But that's what it tasted like. And so maybe a few years ago, I just thought, man, I want to taste summer. I want, I want that experience again. And, and so I went to a convenience store, and, and I bought a, a can of Welch's grape soda, and I walked down the aisle, and I bought some Frito-Lay bean dip, and I, and I walked around, and, and I was dancing on the wild side, and so I got some, some Cool Ranch Doritos and, and some Fritos. And so I thought, because I, I used to use both uh, occasionally, like, you know, filtered, unfiltered, and so you can take that approach. And so I got these things, and I sat down and thought, here is a meal fit for a king. I'm going to relive my summer childhood one delicious bite at a time. You know what I experienced? That mess tastes like trash. That was just flat terrible. It was like one delightful bite at a time going, oh, oh, oh. Think how smart I could have been if I hadn't eaten all this trash. Man, I could have been running the Olympics, but instead I was filling my body full of lard and artificial preservatives, colors, and so on and so forth. And so after I finished that whole can, I I decided not to do it again. (laughs) So one tier at a time, summer. Anyway, so he gets in there and he's asking them this question. And so imagine that in their childlike minds, they remember what it was like. So they remember just being, you know, it's bigger than their imagination. More, more vast than their minds were able to take in and comprehend. And they also have the book of 1 Kings that in case their minds aggrandize, they're able to fully bring it in and say, no, it really was that great. It really was that wonderful. You see, their memories, unlike mine, were not leading them down this path astray. Their minds, in some sense, were giving them an accurate representation of just how great, just how amazing it actually was. So he asked them this question, who among you saw it? And what does he say? And how do you see it now? 
Paul, man. So he doesn't only call them to dwell in the imaginations of how great it was, he even allows them to draw uh, this comparison. And so in essence, he's like, do you remember how awesome it was? I mean, gold everywhere, it was bedazzled, it was spectacular. And, 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 and what about this place? How do you see it now? And they're like, oh man, it was awesome. Ooh. Oh man, it was ooh. So then he turns and he says, is it not as nothing to you? Isn't that a curious question? This is the the idiom that Haggai uses. He said, imagine then if you had nothing in your left hand. Nothing. And you compared that nothing to this temple before you. Would you not say that those things are equal? It's pretty fascinating. Haggai is not leading them to understand that their conception of it is wrong. He is validating their frustration. He is validating their disappointment. He gets in the midst of this and he says, it is, in fact, nothing. See, Haggai is not this cheerleader who wants to build them up and lead them into charging hell with a water pistol, thinking that they, in and of themselves, can affect terrific change in their lives. What he wants them to understand is that outside of complete and utter dependence upon God, all of their efforts, all of their efforts are going to be fruitless. And some bold, grand vision in their mind has no basis in reality. Because the physical structure that they're going to build is nothing in comparison to what Solomon had previously constructed. So he comes in, and, and this is the, the message of demotivation he's given them. And so then he turns each one, each one of these people, each one of these groups, and he turns to Zerubbabel. He turns to this guy who is the governor. He turns to this guy who, is, man, it is on his shoulders to make this thing great for Persia. It is on his shoulders to make this thing great, to let Darius not see that he's led them on some wild goose chase. So he turns to him, and he goes to Zerubbabel, and he has this really plain, really one-word command. He says, Zerubbabel, be strong. He turns from Zerubbabel, and he goes over to the religious authority, and this guy is wrecked, understandably so, because he's in charge of directing all the temple affairs. All of the worship and all the sacrifice to God is going to be in this place. And this guy sees this ramshackle lean-to, this thing that is really nothing more than an outhouse compared to how great Solomon's temple was. And he goes to him and he says, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, be strong. So then he turns and he comes to all the laity, he comes to all the people, and he looks at them. And just imagine that he's looking and he's catching your eyes. And in the midst of this, in crushing disappointment and the weight that somehow what you're doing is not going to amount, it's not going to measure up to something. He comes to you. He finds you in the middle of your disappointment. And his word to you is, be strong. Can I tell you, not, not... A few of us have found ourselves in the middle of giving our lives to the pursuit of God, and we are burdened. We are overdone. I don't know what you thought your life would be. Maybe in college, maybe in high school, you set your mind that you were just going to be this person who is just on fire for God. And you're going to, like David Livingston, you're going to go to Africa, you're going to live in the in the bush and you're going to give everything away in the pursuit of God and for his kingdom and you find yourself working a nine to five you find yourself sitting at home and folding laundry 
you find yourself doing something that doesn't measure up to this image of what you thought you were giving yourself to and what God had for your life. And so you're incredibly disappointed. You're disappointed with the decisions you made in the past. You're disappointed with where those decisions have led you to in the present. And maybe you're a little bit frustrated. God, I had bold vision and plan. But now I find myself caught up in the rat race of the mundane and the ordinary. Can I tell you, I believe God would come to you this morning and his word to you would be the same word that he spoke in the year 520. Be strong. Let your heart be strengthened by the presence of our great God who even out of the mundane produces righteousness and who even out of the mundane ordinary affairs of our life affects eternal change in the lives of all those whom we encounter. Amen? So he gets into the midst of this and he says to all three of these groups, be strong. And with this new sense of strength that is to be theirs, that is to be appropriated by them, coming from God, he calls them to the task. And he says, in essence, work. The second command, be strong. And from this position of being strengthened, he calls them to work. Do you understand the importance that these two can never be flipped? And we're so often the people who flip these things, right? We find ourselves in the midst of some situation, some sin, some predicament, something we're called to, and we're good at working. We're good to giving ourselves to this task. And so we kill it. We expend energy and hours and resources and talents trying to affect change, but we've never been strengthened. We've never been commissioned. We're just being busy. Notice that God's commands first is to be strengthened, and second is to work. And the work comes from a really particular place, and the work is strengthened from a very particular resolve. Look at this. He says, work, why? For I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. Now, God has already told them this back in chapter 1 and verse 13. And if you recall, the fascinating thing about this, the wonderful, gracious thing about this, is that in verse 13 of chapter 1, they are just coming up out of rebellion. They were just these people who were not giving their lives to the pursuit of God, but were giving their lives to their own pursuits, their own fleshly, self, selfish pursuits, if, you, if you'd go so far as to say that. And so in that, in coming up out of that, they have confessed, they have repented, they have turned themselves to what God has for them. In verse 13, he met the return with an announcement of his presence, I am with you. And here too, in the midst of this, he writes to them, be strong and work, for I am with you. Each and every week we have an opportunity to pursue God and his glory, pursue his kingdom in its expanse, or to pursue our own agenda, to pursue those things set before us. And in, in, in some sense, our, our minds want to create this kind of bifurcation. We want to split this thing, Right? So we want to see our lives over here, and we want to see his kingdom and all its pursuits over here on this side. But in essence, if we were to look at this and say, all of my life, all of everything I do can be lived for God's glory and for his kingdom. And so whether I'm over here and folding clothes and, and a, a little TMI, I sweat profusely when I uh, sweat clothes. I don't know apparently just to kind of perpetuate the cycle. But, you know, if I'm doing that and I'm folding clothes, I can do that to the glory and the honor of God. 
I can work a nine-to-five job to the glory and the honor of God. I can care for my children to the glory and the honor of God. Anything and everything I do, I can do it. In fact, God does call me to do it to the glory and the honor of God. And I get there because I recognize that he's with me wherever I go. So everywhere I go, I'm carrying his image. Everywhere I go, I'm carrying his likeness. And everywhere I go, I am fulfilling the mission and the ministry he has given me. So he calls these people and he calls us to work. He says, I'm with you. He says, it's according to the covenant that I made with you when you came up out of Egypt. And look at this. He says, my spirit remains in your midst. Now, the temple stood for God's presence. The temple stood for God's presence. It's the place where they offered sacrifice. It's the place where he chose to reside, chose to manifest himself. And so there should be this disconnect in their minds that if his temple's not there, that his presence isn't there. And so he's with us more in the type of way when you write to somebody in a letter and you're like, like you're in my thoughts. You're in my thoughts. But the reality of what God writes to them and communicates to them through the mouth of the prophet is something decidedly different than you're with me or just like Georgia, you too are on my mind. And so he is communicating to them his eternal omnipotent presence is there with them. And that should be this amazing rallying cry for them. That should be this thing that that really provides a terrific amount of strength and encouragement to them. My spirit remains in your midst. offers one more command. We're disappointed, we're frustrated, things aren't working out the way that we want them to. God comes to us, he says, be strengthened, take resolve, work. We find ourselves in the midst of this, and we're still asking ourselves this question, can he be trusted? Can God be trusted? Does he really desire to see this work come to fruition? Does he really desire to see these things pan out? Or are my past screw-ups and mistakes too significant to be useful for God in his kingdom? And we're terrified. What if Everybody knew what a hapless screw-up I am. And in the midst of laboring and doing these things from God, everyone began to know. They knew my inner life. They knew my mind. They knew my heart. They knew my waywardness. They knew how often I had failed him. And we begin to fear. And fear leads us to rebellion. Fear, in some sense, is this thing that we serve when we don't serve God. We enter into this pursuit of satisfying our fear by keeping ourselves from risking anything by serving, by following him. So he stops them in the middle of this. Can I tell you, this is a people who had absolutely, fleshly speaking, humanly speaking, everything to fear. There's every indication they're going to fail. There's every indication that, man, they were there for 20 years and they have almost nothing to show for it. They have a terrible, terrible track record for getting work done. I mean, these guys are collectively, you know, procrastinators extraordinaire. Apathy had set in. But he comes to them in the midst of this. He says, I know you procrastinate. I know you're full of apathy. I know you're full of divisiveness. I know you are people who are prone to waywardness. I know that in the midst of all of these things, that you build awesome houses for yourself while my house lied in ruin. I know you, in you, there is no end to the level that you're able to produce deceit in your own heart. 
you lie to yourself exceptionally well. And to this people, he writes and says, fear not. Isaiah says it so well in Isaiah 41, 10. He says, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And I don't, I don't know where you are as an individual sitting in here today. Maybe it took absolutely everything in your heart and in your life to come back to church for one more Sunday. Maybe you're listening, you're, you're watching this, and you can't even bring yourself to gather with people because you've been so incredibly hurt by them. Or maybe you hurt them and you just can't bring yourself to apologize. Following that and what that produces in our hearts is choosing to follow fear. These folks had every reason to be afraid. They had every reason to doubt. So God steps into a broken people pursuing their own idols, and he calls them up out of it. He says, be strengthened, and they're made strong. He says, work, and they give themselves to work. And then he calls them, and he says, do not fear. And they find themselves giving up, surrendering the fear, this thing that had been held so tightly to their chest. And they begin to pursue, they begin to follow God. And look what he does next. He begins to talk about what this temple is going to look like in 6 through 9. He says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more in a little while I'll shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. And the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace. So God looks at it, and he looks at the, this shamble of stone over here. And he gives them this incredible word. He says, fear not. And then he says, there's going to be this incredible display of my power and of my might. I'm going to shake absolutely everything. Notice he says, it's the sea, it's the dry land, it's the heaven, it's the earth. God is communicating to them one of the reasons they need not fear is because he is the God of unlimited power because he is the God who controls absolutely everything and he is sovereign even over their pitiable state, their plight, their poverty. And so he describes the way this is going to work and and just how these resources are going to pour in. Now, if you study kind of historically, you'll know that there is a process of taxation that Darius enters into, and so all the lands around them get taxed, and that money comes in so that they're able to build that temple. But lest they begin to think, oh, this is so great, we are borrowing from the nations, God says, no, 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 you need to understand this, everything they have is mine too. Everything they have is mine, everything you have is mine. Man, this is so incredibly important in our lives We save up money to spend on self, and God tells us, man, we are using his resources. We are borrowing money from him because our God owns all the silver and all the gold. Now, verse 9, he has this peculiar thing. He says, the glory of this house shall be greater than its former. Now, we already know from a study of Ezra 3 that when they laid the foundation of this, people wept. Because even from the beginning of the foundation, they recognized that it would not measure up to what Solomon had previously built. And so the question that must roll around in our minds is, how then could this be greater if even from the foundation there was an indication that it wouldn't be better than what Solomon had built? Jesus. Jesus gives us an indication 
that he is the fulfillment of this temple. So when Haggai steps in and he says, and the latter glory will be greater than the former, we recognize that he is in some sense speaking of Jesus. Jesus, who in Matthew 12, 6, chastised those around him, and he says, if you had but known the one whom is speaking is greater than the temple. So Jesus describes himself as being the one greater than the temple. Jesus really cooking everybody's mind in John chapter 2 after he fashions a whip out of cores and chases everybody out. I'd love to see that happen in the new foyer. After he does this, he goes over and they ask him in essence, hey look, that was wild. We haven't had that happen in a while. Could you let us know your bona fides? Like how did you, on whose authority did you do this? And so Jesus responds to them in John chapter 2 and starting in verse 19. He says, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. So you imagine they look around, and they're in Herod's temple now, which is a spectacle. And they look around, and they're like, man, you must have an incredible crew. Like your project management crew and your supply chain, are you building, come on, are you building this off-site? Are you bringing in prefab walls? They obviously miss it. Jesus says, destroy this temple, in three days I'll raise it up. The Jews said, it's taken us 46 years to build this temple. And when you raise it up in three days and we find out, look what he says. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. And when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And look what happens to them. They believe the scripture and the word that Jesus has spoken. So all the things that Haggai writes about this temple and how great and how glorious it's gonna be, you recognize that Jesus is a new and better temple. One of the things Peter does is Peter takes this idea that Jesus is this new and better temple. And then he speaks to a people who are displaced. He speaks to a people who are really struggling to find their way. And what do we do in this new world where we are outcasts? So he comes to them in 1 Peter 2. And he comes to us in 1 Peter 2. And he says, as you come to him, speaking of Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You see the way this works. You and I, if you have put your full faith and confidence in Jesus, if you look at your life and you say, my life is all liability, but Jesus' life is all salvation. If you recognize Jesus is the one who came to a perfectly sinless life, who laid himself down, who allowed himself to be crucified, who entered into the grave and three days later rose and was resurrected and sits forever at the right, and reigning at the right hand of God. If this is the testimony of your heart, then this is what God is doing with you. So he doesn't just bring us as a people into the church, but he fashions us, he he takes off the rough edges of our lives, and he is building us collect collectively into being this spiritual house for a specific purpose. And when we recognize that he is building us into this spiritual house, and he's making us into this place to offer spiritual sacrifices that are holy and acceptable to God through Jesus, then we begin to get this understanding that when we are dismayed, that when we are disappointed, 
that when we're so caught up in our own pursuits, and man, this is so easy, we give ourselves to worshiping the idol of family, we give ourselves to worshiping the idol of our jobs, of our likability, or just our, uh, just kind of health and recreational time. Whenever we give ourselves to those things, then we're choosing not to offer spiritual sacrifices to God, but we're choosing to offer sacrifices to ourselves. And that is not why you were saved. That is not what he has built you to do. That is not what he has designed you for. So it's this beautiful picture, right, of me coming alongside Johnny, coming alongside Dee, coming alongside Jesse, coming alongside Charles, coming alongside Harry, coming alongside Tim, coming alongside Cinda. And all of us together are being knit into this framework so that he might receive greater glory. And in the midst of this, one of them is certainly going to get disappointed. They're going to get disappointed in some of the others they're working with. They're going to get frustrated at the purpose. And God steps into the middle of that. And he says, be strong. Recognize our strength comes from him and is best displayed in working together, not alone. So he tells us, he says, be strong. And in the midst of this renewed strength and energy, he comes to us and he says, now I've got some real work for you to do. Work. And so we get into this work, and then somebody falls away, or somebody says something uncharitable about us, and, and they leave, and, and the role that they have formerly served is this pillar, and so things were, were resting on them, and they fall away. So he gets into the middle of that, and he says, fear not. See, our focus and attention needs to be on the one who knows the future. And inasmuch as we're a part of that, and we're allowing him to build us together as like living stones, following the pattern laid down to us by Jesus, the chief cornerstone, we'll be strengthened, we will work, and we will not fear. Because we trust the one who holds the future. Let me pray for us. Father, we pray that you would guide and direct us and all righteousness. God, I want to pray for those this morning. I mean, they are just incredibly overcome with grief, their past failures and regrets, and they see them as being so incredibly significant that they don't see a way through this. They don't see a way to serve you. So God, would you bring healing to their hearts? Would you lead them to walk in the truth of what Haggai is saying and what the prophet Isaiah said, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will help you, I will strengthen you, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Would you help them to walk in light of that promise, their identity as living stones, not rejected, not cast off, but those whom you desire to use for the expanse of your kingdom and your glory. So we pray for them. Father, too, we pray for those who have yet to submit themselves to you. They're making much of themselves, pursuing goodness, pursuing their own ends. And Father, we pray that they would abandon those pursuits and pursue you. We'd be so bold and so compassionate to say, God, we pray that you would break them to themselves. You would lead them in the power of your Holy Spirit to recognize sin. You would convict them concerning sin and righteousness. 
call them to abandon their pursuits and to cry out, Father, save me. God, I pray that you just help us all corporately to be found faithful. Knowing your word and following your word. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.